0: All right, it is time for us to get started. We're going to be picking up where we left off Wednesday with James chapter 1, specifically verse 27. That's James chapter 1, verse 27. Specifically, what we had been dealing with before was the or beginning Wednesday night, we were talking about the consequences of hypocrisy and how the scriptures are adamantly against hypocrisy. And the beginning part of the section that we were talking about started verse 22. It said, But be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And we connected this with the later parts, verses 26 through 27. said, If any among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, This one's religion is useless, is literally vain, worthless, not accepted. It's not following after God. He's deceiving himself into thinking he's religious, thinking he's following after God. But the reality is his actions don't coincide. They don't connect. And that brings us to this last point in verse 27 where James is describing what pure religion is. Now, what does the word pure mean? Someone just give me a a quick definition of the word pure. Perfect's a good one. Anything else? What? Untainted. Untainted. Those are all good examples for it. And that's literally the idea. When we think of pure water, we think of purified drinking water. We see those in the stores all the time. We buy purified drinking water. It literally had the impurities removed from it. It is completely removed, left out of the way, left aside. Another good example would be pure gold. How do you get pure gold? Do we see natural occurrences of genuine pure gold? No. No. So what has to happen to get it? You have to refine it. You have to heat it up, melt it, let all the impurities get out of it. You take those out of the way, and then when it cools, it hardens, it becomes pure gold. Pure gold. The same thing is true here. We're talking about pure religion, religion that is untainted, religion that does not have impurities in it. So it is exactly the way it was intended to be from the beginning. So, how do we describe this? Pure religion and undefiled, again, that same idea, it's not corrupted, it's not ruined. Undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. He literally gave two descriptions, just two descriptions on what pure religion is. Now, why is it important that we have to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Remember, we talked about in Acts chapter 2, the latter part. What were they continuing in? What did the early church look like? Just give me some examples of what they did from the first century. What did we talk about in Acts chapter 2, around verse 40 and down? What were some of the things that they did? They They met together often. What else? Anyone who had a need, they met it. There was benevolence taking place. They were giving to those who had need. What else? So we have fellowship and we have benevolence. What else did they do? They do I know? Met in their homes. They met at homes. They had that fellowship. They were connecting with one another. What else? Anything else? They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and breaking bread and in prayers. Those were the th- main things that they had focus. We're going to follow after the word of God. We fellowship together. We build that connection, that family unit, and we take care of the needs of others. Now, does that sound similar to what James just said in James chapter 1, verse 27? Same kind of idea? If we're following after the doctrine of Christ, what are we doing? We are removing the impurities. We're keeping ourselves unspotted from the world. We're following after the will that he had set forth. If we're following what God said, then we're not going to be impure. We're not going to be a part of those things. And to visit the fatherless and their widows, does that just mean that we visit them? Like we just show up and we say, hey, how's it going? Is that what he's talking about? What does that word visit mean? Do I know? take care of the needs. I'm going to meet the needs. That's the idea here. So he says, you are keeping yourself unspotted from the world. You're removing all those impurities that would include following after what God has had to say, the doctrines that were taught, and to visit the fatherless of the widows in their affliction. Benevolence. We're meeting needs of those who are, un, who are less fortunate. Now, what's interesting about the fatherless and the widows? Why, why are they set out in this period of time? Why would that be so important? Do I know? They're helpless. They're helpless. At this period of time, if you were a, a widow, you did not have a husband to provide, you could not really get a job. You couldn't really provide for yourself. You were purely dependent on the benevolence of others, on the help of others. If you were fatherless, then you were considered to be of bad blood. You don't have any inheritance. Your father's house is gone. If you were young, you would have been cast out, thrown onto the street, helpless. This is kind of the idea of what he's talking about. You help those who cannot help themselves. You meet those needs when they're necessary. That's the idea of what we're discussing here with this benevolent attitude of Christians. Christians should always be the ones who, when they see a need, they meet it. They take care of the problem. They say, we don't have to go to another source. We don't have to let someone else do it. In America, we have a a slight problem with this. We like to turn over helping the needs of others to agencies or to somebody else. We we do the pass-down effect in America. I'm going to pay you to do the job I should do. (laughs) Does that not sound familiar? We do that all the time. I'm going to pay you to keep giving me what I want. We pay for streaming services because we don't want to buy the movies. (laughs) That's the idea that we follow. We keep passing it down. Christians are always active people. We're never passive. That's never what God intended for Christians to be, as passive people. We don't just show up and let Christianity be done for us. See, a lot of people in America and in a lot of Western nations as well like to just keep throwing money at issues. Oh, there's mission needs in the Congo? Well, we're just going to throw money at it. We'll, we'll keep throwing money at it. Is that a bad thing? No, we can help the needs that are there, but we better be doing stuff here. If I'm not going to go over there, then I need to be doing it here. That's Christianity. We are not a passive people. And what James is describing is this pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father of this. Take care of the needs of the helpless and keep yourself unspotted from the world. That's exactly what we talked about with not being entangled by the things of this world in the sermon this morning. We're not all brought into it. It's not the main focus of our lives. In this past move. I think every one of us can discuss how difficult moves are and how hectic it is. And this is the best example I can give for this idea. When you're moving, everything is out of place. Everything. And what happens to your mental state when everything is out of place? You will forget everything. You will forget every minor detail. And by the end of the day, you'll say, I should have done this. I should have done this. I should have taken care of that. That needed to be taken care of. And it just drives you crazy. Christianity is similar to that. If I'm entangled by all the things of this world, what brain power do I have left to think about what God has asked me to do? It's the same idea. Now, if I have in my mind, I'm focusing on God, I have to make sure that takes place, then the other problems that come in in my life, the other complications, the things with work and things of that nature, I know they have to be taken care of, but I have time set aside to take care of this as well, to follow after God to keep ourselves unspotted from the world. Now, it's interesting that he used the term unspotted. Would this have significance to Jews? Would the word unspotted have any significance to Jews? Like unblemished. unblemished. Why would that have significance with them though? Sacrifices. Exactly. Exactly. The sacrifices under the old law, when God told them to offer the first of their flocks, he mentioned unspotted. unspotted, A lamb that had blemishes, that had problems with it. You were to offer the best that you had. In Romans chapter 12 verses 1 and 2 what did Paul say that we are to God? That we are to present our bodies a what? A living sacrifice. If I'm offering myself to Christ And I'm not offering him the best. If I'm not offering him what I'm supposed to be, then I'm offering him a blemished sacrifice, a spotted sacrifice. Now, does that mean that I have to be 100% perfect at all times and I can never make a mistake or else I'm a blemished sacrifice? Is that what we're talking about? No. That's the difference in a living sacrifice as opposed to a dead one. When something is dead, it cannot change. It's not going to change. When they sacrificed those lambs, that was it. It's over. As Christians, we are constantly purifying ourselves. How? When we confess our sins, we continue on. We say, I made a mistake, but I keep moving. I'm faithful to Christ. If I'm committed to him, if I'm following after him, I'm not a blemished sacrifice. Now, if I have sins in my life that I'm not repenting of, that I'm not making right, then what am I? A blemished sacrifice. I'm a blemished sacrifice because those things are still on my record. I'm not removing those from my life. I'm not leaving them behind. If it were the case that we 100% had to be perfect people, A, there would be no need for Christ, and B, most of the people in the Bible would have been lost, even those that God named in the Hall of Fame of Faith. Think about David. How many mistakes did David make? Many. Many. Abraham, same deal. Noah, same deal. Moses. Also, he didn't even get to go into the promised land because of his mistakes. But they were all faithful. Even Peter. What did Peter do when Jesus was brought to the judgment seat? He denied him three times. said, I don't even know the man. But he came back. The only difference between the sin of Peter and the sin of Judas is Judas never actually made the repentance. He never made it right. He had the opportunity. God was not going to just condemn him for this unless he never made it right. Otherwise, God would not be a just God. Otherwise, God would not be fulfilling the promises that he made because he would be a respecter of persons. We're going to talk about that more in James chapter 2. He would have been a respecter of persons. He would have been saying, everyone has the ability to be forgiven except Judas. Except Judas. Judas can't be forgiven. Everybody else can. We have in our minds sometimes that I can't be forgiven or someone else can't be forgiven because they've made so many mistakes or they've done so many of these kind of things. But then why did God allow some of the people in the scriptures to be saved? that followed some of the same paths. We talked about Saul today, Saul of Tarsus, who became the apostle Paul. If God wasn't willing to forgive him for those sins, then we wouldn't have had that apostle. We wouldn't have had the works that he did. And God would not have held him in high regard. Do you think his writings would be in the scriptures if God wasn't willing to forgive and save him? It's a necessary thing. We don't need to However, go to the other side of the fence and say that sins don't have consequences. Sins do have consequences. The things that we do, they will condemn if not made right. But I don't need to have the mentality that I'm constantly in the save-loss, 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 save-loss situation. That's not the idea. The idea is if I'm staying faithful to the cause of Christ, I will make mistakes. I will slip up. I don't intend to. I don't go out of my way to do those things. In fact, Paul even wrote that if after we have become a Christian that we seek sin willfully, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sin. If I'm continuing after those things and seeking after those things that are wrong, then I'm not living a life that's faithful to Christ. I'm willingly going out of my way to do these things. So, in discussion of this pure religion, this undefiled, unspotted religion, we are presenting our bodies that living sacrifice. We are following after what he has laid out for us to do the pure religion, then ultimately we're going to be putting God first. And remember, that was the main point of the book of James. Remember the source. Remember the source. When it comes to the good blessings, who do they come from? We talked about this in James chapter 1 verse 17. Who do they come from? From God. When we talk about temptations, who do they not come from? We talked about this in James chapter 1 verse 14. They don't come from God. God is not tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. God is constantly reminding these people who are scattered abroad due to persecution, he's reminding them, keep the source in mind. Focus after God, keep him in front of you at all times. This would have been a difficult thing for them to do because they were dealing with persecution, they were dealing with being scattered. Their homes are left behind, their lives are left behind. And they need to be focused on the one place where they can receive this comfort. So, that's James chapter 1. We got through that in very few class periods, honestly. I was kind of surprised with how quickly we got through that. It's a wonderful study. It's so much depth to it. But, let's see, what time is this? 10.51? We got nine minutes. We can start James chapter 2. All right. Let's start chapter 2. If someone could read verses 1... Let's say through verse 4. Alright, so, as we talked about before, God hates the idea of hypocrisy and partiality. Those are two things he holds to, because those are two things that are completely opposite to him. Opposite to him. When God says, I am the same yesterday, today, and forever, that proves he's not a hypocrite. I say what I mean, and I'm going to follow through with what I say I'm going to do. Now, when it comes to partiality, did God say... Only these people that I like can be saved. We even know under the Old Testament, there were people who were allowed to be proselytes, those who were allowed to follow after the law of Moses, even though they weren't nationally Jews. He even made allowances for that. So if God, even under the strictest period of time, would allow that, then what's to say that the Christian dispensation would be different? God doesn't say this group of people can be saved, this group can't. However, what he says, the church can be saved and those outside of it can't. That's what he said. Only those who follow after the wall of Christ, those who are in that house of safety, can have access to that salvation. Those who are outside of it, those who don't follow after him, they're not going to have that. Because 1 John chapter 1, God is light in him, is no darkness at all. If we're living in sin, we can't even coincide with him. We can't be in the same place. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son cleanseth us, continuously cleanses from all sin. We're able to live in that house of safety with him, not worried about our sins, because I know that when I slip up and fall, I know when I make mistakes, I can continue to follow after God and keep him in the forefront. That's the main purpose here. So when he gets to this section, James chapter two, verses one through four, he says, my brethren have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory with respect of persons. That's King James version. A new King James version, he says with partiality. You want to know another word for that? Prejudice. Prejudice. Pre-judging. I'm not going to go after you or help you or do what you need because you don't fit the mold I want to help. That's the idea here. Now, specifically, what is he talking about in this section? What is the prejudice based on here? Do the what? Their appearance, that's part of it. Also what? What was the other thing he said? Their wealth. Their wealth. He says, you're going to say to this poor man... sit under my footstool, but to the rich man, you're going to say, sit here at the chief stool. We're going to find out later on in this passage the consequences and what was actually taking place with this, but this is not something that's new. We do this even today. We see this all around us. Someone has their, if there's a, a rich group of people or a group of people who maybe have something I want, oh, that's going to be my best friend i'm going to do everything in my power to be friends with them but the people who might actually be good friends to me the ones who actually need my help or who are willing to help me i might not give them the time of day because they don't have what i want people treat god the exact same way people treat god that way but that's never been his attitude he says you are my friends if you do whatsoever i command you if you love me keep my commandments But there are people in the world who say, I want the blessings of God, but I'm not willing to work for it. I'm not willing to do what he has to say. And they're taking that same mentality and they're putting it into their daily lives. I'm going to elevate this man over here because he has wealth or he looks nice or he just looks like someone I want to be around. But this guy that's dressed in bad apparel and he's poor, well, you can sit under the footstool. I don't want you to make me look bad. Who did Jesus spend his time around when he was on this earth? With sinners. With the publicans. Remember what those people were at that time period. These were the people who would have been collaborators, the ones who were working with the Roman government, traitors to their nation, the poor the destitute, those who are sick. Jesus touched a leper, unclean. You're not supposed to be in society. That was for hygiene reasons, partially. That's true. I'm not saying we should go out touching lepers all the time. That's not what I'm talking about. The idea was he went to those who were outcasts of society and told them you are not outcast of Christ. The way that I am paving, you are not outcast if you follow after me. He was willing to help those who were in need. He was even willing to help those who would reject Him immediately after being helped. Immediately after they were saved or helped in their sense, whatever that was uh, saving them from their physical difficulties such as sickness or casting out a devil, there were some who just immediately left Him behind. But He still went out of His way to help them. He still did what they needed to be done. So He's telling these Christians... If you're going to hold the faith of Jesus Christ, hold it the way he did. Live like Christ. Because if we're being judges of evil thoughts, which is what it just described there, what does that mean? Judges of evil thoughts. Let's take a moment to step back from that. What does it mean to be a judge of evil thoughts? King James says judge with evil thoughts. What does that mean? What does that sound like? In legal terms, you might call that a hostile judge. A hostile judge. Someone who's against you from the moment you walk in the courtroom. That's the same idea. As Christians, we are to be impartial judges. We were all at one point sinners in need of a Savior. Why should you be considered worse than I was back in the day? Now, if you reject the word of the Lord, I can't help you. I can't do anything to fix that. But if I offer you the same courtesy I would offer anybody else, then I'm living like Christ did because Christ offered the chance to the Pharisees and to the publicans. He offered salvation to Jews and to Gentiles. So if I'm going to live like Christ, I cannot allow these prejudices to be a part of my life. That means any kind of prejudice. Period. That's not a Christian lifestyle. People in the today like to talk about how the Bible is racist or sexist or all these other ists. When in reality, the Bible is the exact opposite of all of that. For its day, it was the most progressive book. It uplifted women to a role of saying, you are valuable. It told husbands, you love your wife even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. He said, you need to be willing to lay down your life for that woman. He said that women are to be treated, and this is what really gets people mad, as the weaker vessel. Do you know what that means? You handle it as though you're handling the most valuable item you have. You are taking care of it. You are careful with where you put it. You are careful with what you do around it. You cherish it. You value it. That's how he told them to treat their wives. Back in the day, what was a wife? In the Gentile culture, nothing more than breeding. That was it. That was it. He told them to love them. He told them to care for them. He told them to value them. And in terms of every other ist, since we're running out of time very, very quickly, races, all could come to Christ. Jew, Gentile, didn't matter. All had the ability to come to him. So he was encouraging his people, be like me, because I am not going to be a prejudice judge. I'm not going to be one who allows some and not others. But that is all the time we have time for. Thank you very much for your attention.